Was it a conspiracy in the Vietnamese War in the planning and carrying out about it or not? I, I never thought about that. That's an interesting connection. Can I take a few minutes to tell you about my connection to Mel Gibson? I'm doing a talk show. Talk to you later. everybody to nwczradio.com channel one's down the rabbit hole my name is big d and it is another midweek edition with us and it's good to have you along this is a special midweek edition in fact the next two episodes i think are very special because i did a poll about a couple of shows ago maybe three or four shows ago i can't even remember now and i asked if you would be interested in us having guests here on the program and it was an overwhelming yes, 90%, I believe, and a lot of responses. So I appreciate the feedback. And in honor of that, I thought, why not start off with somebody who we've referenced and we've talked about several times on this show, especially in dealing with the New World Order. One of the seminal textbooks that you should have in your library is the book, The New World Order, by Ralph Epperson. And I was able to track Ralph Epperson down, and he was gracious enough to give me quite a bit of time. I spent probably four hours total with Ralph Epperson via Zoom. He lives in Arizona. I live in Texas. Ralph is 85, and he has written many, many books, three books that I think are his trilogy, and that is The Unseen Hand, The New World Order, and he wrote a book on the Masons. All three of those books, fantastic. He has hours and hours of DVD presentations where he shows videos, proof, photos of books that he has. He showed me via his camera, his library, and all kind of amazing artifacts and documents that he has to back up all of his claims. He is my inspiration for research. This is the ultimate connector. He loves to make connections, and he's been doing it for a long, long time. And if you don't know the background of Ralph Epperson, Ralph taught history at a community college, so he's a historian, and he's a researcher, and he's just an amazingly smart individual. He had a radio show for a while, and he has traveled all around the country and the world. Most of his books are in several languages. So this is a very accomplished individual and somebody I think highly of. And I was very honored to be able to spend some time with him. And now we get to spend time with him. So good way to start out our interview programs. And we're not going to do interviews on every program. As we get them or if there's some subject that warrants bringing in a guest then we're going to do our best to do that, get some expert 
opinion or somebody who has written a book on the subject or so forth. I want to direct you to ralphepperson.com. That's E-P-P-E-R-S-O-N, ralphepperson.com. And I'll talk a little bit more about that on the other end of this interview. I've done in my radio and podcasting career probably thousands of interviews, primarily in the entertainment, comedians, bands, personalities, TV personalities, and so forth. This was one of the more unique interviews I've ever done in the sense that because Ralph is 85, you'll see when he does talk quite a bit, but he has he can't talk a lot. He has a bit of a raspy voice, but all of his information is there. So what he had me do is he would hold up sheets of paper to the screen and I would read them off, sort of like a call and response. So I'm reading his subject matter what he wants to say written on these sheets of paper. So you'd hold them up, I would read them, and then he responds. So it's not a question and answer. It's, it's not, hey, Ralph, how you doing? And what are your thoughts on this? This is actually a presentation of his that he normally gives because that's where all of his notes and everything are. So it's quite unique. So how this works is you're going to hear me reading a lot. Then you will hear Ralph Epperson responding and filling in the gaps. And then at the end of the interview, we actually do have a bit of a dialogue exchange. It's quite unique, it's quite interesting, and I think it's fascinating. You don't have to agree with everything he says. I just challenge you to listen, hear what he has to say, and decide for yourself. That's how we do it here. I think his books are terrific, and the subject matter that we're gonna talk about today we're going to go into some major history. We're going to start basically at World War II and work our way through Vietnam and including Kennedy and George Herbert Walker Bush and all the way up to today. Ralph Epperson is a big believer that history is guided, that it's not random, that history doesn't just randomly happen, that history actually, that's thus the title, The Unseen Hand. He believes there are people behind the scenes pulling the strings, creating what we know as history. So he's going to explain that. He's going to explain a lot about why we were in Vietnam, why China has risen so much, all sorts of things. It's fascinating. So without much further ado, we're going to get into it. This is a two-parter. So today is part one. And then next week on the midweek, instead of branding doing one, we will drop part two. So this is my discussion with Ralph Epperson. Enjoy. Okay, what we're going to do, Big D, is we're going to talk about a very important subject. We're going to talk about where China got all the money it's able to give to the Bidens and all those people by the millions of dollars, because there was something going on during the Vietnamese War. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to flash these great pages and you're going to read them. I know it's wiggly. I'll do the best I can. I'll scroll up. I can see that on my screen. So I'll start out Vietnam and you can. So we're going to talk about China's source of trillions of dollars. And the subject is Vietnam, America's betrayal and treason, 1964 to 1975. That's what we're going to talk about. This is a story. You can read these, okay? Start with this one. 
A two-hour condensation of a four-hour DVD, which is entitled Vietnam, America's Betrayal and Treason. Okay, so I've, what I've done is taken certain pages out of the four-hour, and I think it should be about two hours. Okay, let's get started. I want to start this presentation with a letter written by Mr. Now Look Q, a member of the Hmong tribe in Burma, a neighboring nation to, uh, to Vietnam. Once you see what he said, you will see why it is important. Apparently, the Hmong people were also fighting the Viet Cong in their country, and it appears that he must have been an officer in their army, and this is what he wrote. This is a letter he wrote to me from the Hmong council or whatever it is, and this is him over there. So it looks, it looks very, I, it, like a very decorated military I personnel. Would, I would guess he's probably an officer, but there's no way of knowing. I don't know what those... Maybe because those epithets, they call those things on the shoulder, don't show. But anyway, this is his letter, and we're going to read this. It's not very long because this man, he said nice things about my work. Listen to what he said. This is now his letter. You're reading a letter that I, I showed you, and the letter was to me, but you're going to, be, you're going to become Ralph Epperson. Okay, I've been watching your four-hour Vietnam betrayal and treason. I would like to have your DVD to let all my Hmong people see and hear the true story why we're in America today. The true story. Listen to this. I've been searching the true story for 36 years. In other words, he and his people were fighting a war, and no one knew why they were doing it. And so now back to the letter. Here's my little donation for your time to study all your true life and to get the true answers for our Hmong veterans, Laos veterans, and the Southeast Asian veterans. In other words, he's going to make it public. I can hardly describe how thankful I was by receiving his letter and seeing how he was going to make it available to all sorts of people. I wrote back and thanked him. In other words, here's a man that fought a war and doesn't know why. 36 years, I think he said. He didn't know until he watched my DVD, which means I'm presenting material that answers his question. Now he knows why we fought the war. Now, to understand the Vietnamese War, we must go back to the beginning. World War II was fought between the years of 1941 and 1945. And in this part of the world called Southeast Asia, it was fought between the Japanese and the United States. The Vietnamese War was fought between the years of 1965 and 1975. The government of North Vietnam and a guerrilla army fought against the South Vietnamese and the United States, so there was about 20 years between the two wars. During World War II, the Japanese were occupying the area, and as the war was drawing to a close, they started withdrawing their troops back to Japan, and as they left the area, they abandoned tons of war-making material. These weapons, ammunition, food supplies, medicine, etc. were gathered up by the Office of the Strategic Services, abbreviated to the OSS, and they turned them over to the Ho Chi Minh, the leader of the guerrilla army later called the Viet Cong. Please remember this photograph of these two men for a reason I will discuss later. I don't have the picture, but it was a picture of Bill Clinton with Ho Chi Minh. Oh, okay. I wanted to, there was a reason that picture was made, and I don't have the picture. The American government knew that Ho had been educated in Moscow, in communist Russia, and that he had been exiled to France, where in 1920 he became the first Vietnamese to join the French Communist Party. In 1930, he organized the Indochina Communist Party, and in 1941, he created the communist-dominated Viet Cong. All of his background was known to the government of the United States prior to World War II. 
There's a book entitled Strange Ground, Americans of Vietnam from 1945 to 1975 by Harry Maurer. He quotes Kenneth Landon, a State Department officer who met Ho Chi Minh in 1946, and quote, he was a good communist. Oh, my goodness. The USS knows he's a communist? I had no doubt that if he dominated the political scene, it would be a communist country. This story was confirmed in this Parade magazine article that appeared in 1973, entitled, Ho was an intelligence agent for the United States. This means Ho worked for us, the American taxpayers. Wait a minute. Our government's funding this Marxist communist? Wait a minute. The position that the United States was supporting this communist in the planning of a major revolution and war in Vietnam was confirmed by the Parade magazine article in June of 1982. Parade wrote that American General Philip Gallagher arrived in Vietnam in the summer of 1945 and established a warm rapport with Ho. Oh, let's all have a good time here. We're going to plan a war, you and I. Do you understand? We're buying a, a revolutionary, a communist. There's a book entitled A Bright Shining Lie by Neil Sheehan, who told us who another of these Americans who assisted the communist Ho Chi Minh was. He says this on page nine. After the entry of the United States into World War II, Lieutenant Colonel Lucien Conan joined the Office of Strategic Services, the forerunner of the Central Intelligence Agency. He had landed in the area by parachute in 1945. Harry Maurer wrote this in his book, quote, the mission of the OSS was to train a guerrilla force. Huh? What? The OSS is creating the Viet Cong? Wait a minute. How many people are saying that around America? So the message was very clear. The United States government was backing Ho Chi Minh in a communist revolution and ultimately a war in Vietnam. Eight years later, in 1953, Dwight Eisenhower became president of the United States, and he started sending American military advisors into Vietnam. These men were not in Vietnam to fight the Viet Cong. They were there to train an army of South Vietnamese to fight the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese Army. And in 1960, the American people elected John Kennedy as president of the United States. We're going to discover the reason John Kennedy was assassinated. Sometime later, President Kennedy learned of the plans of the CIA to create a war in Vietnam. And he planned on making a complete withdrawal of all American troops in Vietnam after his re-election in 1964. The fact that President Kennedy planned on withdrawing the troops has been confirmed by at least six different sources. I'd like to discuss three of those six. This is Fletcher Prouty, a retired Air Force colonel who worked as a liaison between the CIA and President Kennedy. In, in the, uh, the, the full four hours, there's slides showing what Tuck, Fletcher Prouty looked like. So President Kennedy was committed to getting America out of the war that hadn't even started. But on November 22nd, 1963, President Kennedy, of course, traveled to Dallas, Texas and was assassinated. And this is the Los Angeles Times edition of November 23rd, 1963, the morning after the assassination. According to the paper, and the reason they conspired to assassinate the president was because he wanted to end a war that had been planned since at least 1945 and to start the process of the withdrawal of the troops from Vietnam. President Kennedy issued National Security Action Memorandum Number 263, dated October 11th, 1963, about six weeks before the assassination. Do you understand what's going on? John yep. Kennedy says, I don't want to go to war in, in Vietnam. 
this is why he was assassinated. I stumbled onto this. This is the only reason they killed him. The memorandum specifically ordered the withdrawal of 1,000 of the 16,500 troops initially. Upon the death of Kennedy, Vice President Lyndon Johnson became President of the United States. One could logically conclude that the reason President Kennedy was assassinated was, was because he wanted to end a war that had been planned by the government of the United States at least 18 years before, and that President Johnson wanted to carry out those plans. Is that the reason he was killed? Yes. You don't monkey with the CIA, baby. And what did he say? I want to split it up into a thousand points. During the campaign before the war started, President Johnson was promising the American people, quote, we don't want our American boys to do the fighting for Asian boys. We don't want to get tied down in a land war in Asia. So okay. Johnson was making three promises with those statements. One, no American boys would fight for Asian boys. Two, there would be no land war in Asia. And three, we would not get tied down in any war in Vietnam. The next thing that happened occurred in August of 1964 by an incident known as the Gulf of Tonkin Incident. The American people were told that two North Vietnamese patrol boats fired on two American destroyers in the Gulf of Tonkin, the body of water just east of North Vietnam. But the interesting thing is that this attack never took place. U.S. News & World Report carried an article in their July 23, 1984 edition entitled The Phantom Battle That Led to War. On the night of August 4, 1964, the Maddox and another destroyer, the Turner Joy, radioed that they were under attack by at least three North Vietnamese PT boats. This is a book entitled In Love and War, written by Admiral Jim Stockdale, at the time a squadron leader on an aircraft carrier also near the Gulf of Tonkin. He heard the report, and he was the first American pilot over the area where the two destroyers were, and he heard the Maddox frantically report that the ship was under attack by the three PT boats and that torpedoes were in the water engaging the enemy with his main battery. Finally, for those of you who have the ability to get on the internet, Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara admits on a 3-minute, 34-second clip available on YouTube entitled Gulf of Tonkin, McNamara admits that it did not happen. Uh-huh. Okay, let's figure out why. Why did they do it? And here is the reason the media went with the story that our destroyers had been attacked. And this comes from the U.S. News and World Report article. His press stories and leaks from U.S. officials suggested that McNamara's 1964 testimony about the Gulf of Tonkin incidents was at best incomplete and at worst part of an elaborate, if improbable, conspiracy. You imagine whoever wrote that, someone in the U.S. News and World Report, they don't talk about conspiracy. But here he said it was an improbable conspiracy. Yes, his, his tongue probably fell out of his mouth. Two days later, after the alleged attack, President Johnson asked Congress to pass the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, giving him the permission to use retaliatory force against the North Vietnamese. The resolution was passed 416 to nothing in the House and 88 to 2 in the Senate. And Johnson signed the resolution. And we were at war in Vietnam. That had been planned by the conspiracy behind the American government in at least 1945. Who's, okay, who's saying this beside me? The military advisors in Vietnam laid down their clipboards and grabbed their rifles, all because of an event that simply did not happen. 
So I asked the question in a three-hour uh, lecture that I produced in 1992, why did this conspiracy stage a phony attack? Please remember that we, the people, voted for Lyndon Johnson, the peace candidate, in air quotes, in the election of 1964. And in fact, as I've said, he promised the U.S. we would not go to war in Vietnam. So we had to be tricked into it. So they staged a fake incident so that we would support their war plans made at least in 1945. But staging an incident to get America into war that the American people did not want is not a new idea. It has been tried at least two times before. And to understand that event, we need to go back to 1923 when Army General Billy Mitchell was ordered to sail for Pearl Harbor to inspect the defenses of the island. Here's a book written about the general entitled General Billy Mitchell, published in 1952 by Roger Burlingame. On page 100, he reports, The general inspected the island and projected an imagery of war in which Japan would attack and submitted a report to the commander of the army on the island. He understood the vulnerability of unprotected ships at anchor. Nothing was done in shoring up the weakness that the general saw. The next step in the plan for the attack to occur in 1932, when the United States conducted a naval exercise on Pearl Harbor, they staged an attack on the harbor from the north on the harbor itself. And this showed that the island was vulnerable from the north and from the sea. And they invited the Japanese admirals to come and watch the attack, simply stated the reason they invited the Japanese admirals to come to the Pearl Harbor was to see that if they ever wanted to attack Pearl Harbor, they should do it so from the north by air. Can you believe this? 1932, they invite the Japanese. We're going to show you how to attack our, our, our Pearl Harbor. And then the American government did nothing to shore up its defenses on the north side of the island. Japanese spies on the island kept Japan informed about the fact that America did nothing to improve the defenses of the northern side. And the final examination at the Japanese Naval Academy after 1932 was to plan an attack on Pearl Harbor. This part of the evidence was provided on page 20 of the December 6, 1981 Parade Magazine article on the attack. And President Franklin Roosevelt was speaking as the peace president on October the 23rd, 1935. He said, quote, it shall be my earnest effort to keep this country unentangled from any possible war that may occur across the seas. But he's planning it. Yes, he's planning the war. And later in October 1940, about 14 months prior to Pearl Harbor, he said, quote, I shall say it again and again. Your boys are not going to be sent into any foreign wars. So he was saying these things all the time. He and his administration were working to provoke Japan into attacking the American forces because he knew the lesson learned in World War I. Provoke an incident so horrible that the American people would get angry enough to allow the planners to fight the war they had planned. On December the 8th, President Roosevelt asked Congress for a declaration of war against Japan. He called the attack a day of infamy but somehow failed to mention that he had assisted in the planning this incident to get us into the war that the people did not want. But once again, this was a staged event intended to provoke the American people to anger, to accept a declaration of war against Japan. And to show you that this was true, I would like to quote Henry Stimson, President Roosevelt's Secretary of War. He made this statement when he was questioned by one of the nine committees investigating the Pearl Harbor attack. Quote, in spite of the risk Involved in letting the Japanese fire the first shot. 
we realized that in order to have the full support of the American people, it was desirable to make sure the Japanese be the ones to do this, so that there should remain no doubt in anyone's mind as to who were the aggressors. The question was how we should maneuver them into the firing the first shot without allowing too much danger to ourselves. Several years ago, I found a copy of the top half of the front page of the Hilo Hawaii Tribune Herald newspaper with its headline of, quote, Japan may strike over the weekend. So here's the headline from Hilo Tribune Herald. It says Japan may strike over weekend from okay, November 30th, 1941, the Sunday you before got, the attack. You got that? Okay, it's one week ahead of time. The, the, this newspaper found out about the plans. Yeah, because how else would they know? A week before, yeah. The newspaper was dated November 30th, 1941, the Sunday before the next weekend, Saturday the 6th and Sunday the 7th of December. So they were warning Hawaii that a Japanese attack could be coming the very next weekend. So the question should be asked, how come this newspaper knew that Japan was going to strike the following weekend, but President Roosevelt didn't know? I would hazard a guess that President Roosevelt's intelligence sources were greater than those of the newspaper. But Roosevelt was never charged for what he did to provoke Japan into attacking Pearl Harbor. No one wondered why these nine congressional investigations did not charge the president with the dereliction of duty, as was done twice by the Senate of the United States. The next comment should explain exactly why these planners could sacrifice the lives of Americans in events that they had planned. They considered their goal to be of worldwide significance, and in their minds, those goals were worthy of the effort. So the Japanese attacked the Navy and Air Force in Pearl Harbor with the following results. Four battleships sunk, four battleships damaged, 2,345 military personnel killed. Now I would like to explain how Franklin Roosevelt could know that the attack was coming, yet he did nothing to warn Pearl Harbor. I'm, not la I'm laughing because you have to. It's this, so ludicrous. What is, this, what is this called? And Ralph Epperson has the answer. Franklin Roosevelt was a 32nd degree Mason, and it became his religion. Masons are taught that the end justifies the mean, meaning whatever they deem to be appropriate, even though it is harmful, they can pursue it. In fact, they can actually permit the sacrificing of innocent people, in this case, Army and Navy military personnel. Here is the permission contained in perhaps the greatest Masonic book ever written, entitled Morals and Dogma, written by Albert Pike, the leader of the worldwide Masonic movement from 1839 to 1891, and this quote is found on page 833. The quote reads, It is not true that one man, however little, must not be sacrificed to another, however great, to a majority or to all men. That is a fallacy, but a most dangerous one. Often one man and many men must be sacrificed in the ordinary sense of the world to the interest of of the many. The dictionary defines the word sacrifice as an offering to a deity, and the deity of Albert Pike's religion is Lucifer, the light bearer. Page 321 of Morals and Dogma, Lucifer is another name for Satan, the devil. So Franklin Roosevelt was sacrificing 2,345 sailors and airplane pilots and their crew to Lucifer in the ordinary sense of the word. So in summary, the conspirators wanted a war in Vietnam, and the American people didn't. So they staged a phony event, the Gulf of Tonkin incident, which did not happen, and they tricked us. 
We would now, quote, get tied down in a land war in Asia. But the planners had another problem. Vietnam was a largely agrarian economy. About 80% of the people lived on farms, and they had no war-making technology. And so they had no missiles, no radar, no tanks, no jet aircraft, and no rifles. But these planners wanted a 20th century war. There were only two major countries that had missiles, radar, tanks, jets, aircrafts, and rifles. And those countries would be the United States and Russia. So the U.S. would supply communist Russia. In other words, the United States supplied both sides of the war. Here's a cartoon that appeared in the Dallas newspaper sometime during Vietnam. The entire cartoon shows this trade rather dramatically. You I'm going to prove this. Proof. Not theory. Proof. The upper right-hand corner shows a smiling Uncle Sam carrying trade to the smiling officer in the Russian military who, in turn, pipelines it down to the North Vietnamese. And out of the pipeline comes rations, medicine, rifles, pistols, hand grenades, and machine guns. This is Anthony Sutton, who has written at least six books on the subject of this, of this aid and trade being sent to Russia, including his book entitled National Suicide, America's Military Aid to the Soviet Union, and this is published in 1973. These are Professor Sutton's conclusions. There is no such thing as Soviet technology. Let me repeat that. There is no such thing as Soviet technology. Almost all, perhaps 90 to 95 percent of Soviet technology came from the United States and its NATO allies. As I said, it was known by the American government that about 80% of the war-making technology sent to North Vietnamese came from the Soviet Union. So candidate Nixon was specifically addressing the Soviet Union, and as I said, Nixon won the election of 1968. And the answer is a resounding no. The Export Control Act of 1949 provides the president with the authority to prohibit exporters from the United States for any or all of these three reasons. One, foreign policy, two, short supply, and three, national security. We were supplying Russia with the ability to fight the war. We were at war with North Vietnam, although it was not declared by Congress in accordance with the Constitution. So President Nixon could prohibit exports to communist Russia and claim it was in the interest of national security because he had the power to do so. Notice that the president alone has the power. He does not need to go to Congress. He does not need to go to the people. He has the power by himself. All presidents have had the power since 1949. So therefore, President Nixon could deliver on the promises made by candidate Nixon and the Republican Party platform. He promised us that he would not provide any aid to the Soviet Union during the war. We can now determine if he did deliver on that promise. The Department of Commerce prints a quarterly report called Export Control. This cover is from the third quarter of 1969. Notice that since this is a quarterly report, it only covers three months of the year. So this is the 89th quarterly report, the third quarter, 1969, export control by the Secretary of Commerce to the President, the Senate, the House of Representatives. By the way, I read all these reports at the University of Arizona several years ago. I would like to use this report for the third quarter of 1971, a year and a half before the war ended, for a specific reason that I will explain in a few minutes. Nixon was still president in 1971, and Americans were still dying in Vietnam. So here's the 97th quarterly report, third quarter, 1971, export control. Page 11 of this report lists the commodities license for export to East European destinations in the third quarter of 1971. 
this is the list. I've redlined the certain ones I'll talk about by name. That's what we were sending to Russia during that one quarter alone. These are commodities and value. It doesn't name who sold them, but we know that they sent it because the government told us, Department of Commerce told us, this is the stuff that we were sending to Russia to kill Americans in Vietnam. There it is, it's listed. And you're gonna find an interesting thing that happened to that, that report. Well, this is a copy of that page. It lists the products sent to the Russian governments on the bottom third of the list and on the left and all the right side. I would like to discuss eight of these goods sent to Russia in just this one quarter alone when President Nixon knew that the Russians were supplying at least 80% of the war-making technology to North Vietnam. So this is what we sent Russia. Polyvinyl butyl, a synthetic rubber used in bulletproof glass. Apparently the North Vietnamese drivers of the Russian tanks were getting shot, so they needed a bulletproof glass to equip their tanks. Ethanol anti-knock compounds. This product is used in gasoline to reduce engine knocks. $170 million worth of electronic computers, parts, and accessories. Parts for rolling mills. As I understand it, rolling mills, they make steel. They sent ball and roller bearings. This is one of the more strategic items that we sold them. You cannot roll a tank. Move an armored personnel carrier, rotate a radar system, or fire a missile without ball and roller bearings. Russia supplied tanks, armored personnel carriers, radar, and missiles to North Vietnam, and we sent ball and roller bearings to Russia. We also sent Russia $4 million worth of oil and gas field production equipment. We sent Russia the latest technology on improving their gas production facilities. Apparently, the Russian gasoline octane wasn't high enough, airborne navigation equipment and parts. Apparently, the Russian planes were crashing into the mountains in Vietnam, so we sent them the latest technology on better navigation equipment. And lastly, and this is the reason I selected this report to use, we sent Communist Russia $17 million worth of trucks and parts. This is a map of Vietnam, and you will see red arrows showing you where a road was utilized for moving goods from North Vietnam into South Vietnam to kill Americans in South Vietnam called the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Communist Russia was supplying trucks to North Vietnam so that they could move these supplies, and American pilots were assigned the task of destroying these trucks to reduce the inflow of war-making technology and soldiers into the South. Russia must have been losing a great number of their trucks, so they called their wholesaler, the United States, and ordered some more, and their wholesaler sold them a brand new supply. U.S. News & World Report had an article in their January 30th, 1967 issue that stated the North Vietnamese war machine runs almost entirely on Russian oil. In the past 18 months, the Russians shipped in 300,000 tons. In December of 1966, the Soviets shipped nearly 25,000 metric tons of gasoline and oil into Haiphong, and the United States sent Russia oil and gas field production equipment. On page 19 of this third quarter of 1969 report, the Department of Commerce listed the technical data exported to Russia during this one quarter. Presumably, the patents, copyrights, or blueprints for such things as iron and steel foundry, flexible printed circuits, maybe for missiles or possibly computers. And America shipped Russia the technical data for the latest technology for the distillation of petroleum, I have heard from pilots in Vietnam that there was a standard oil refinery in Haiphong operating all of the time during the entirety of the war. Please read that again. 
I've heard from pilots in Vietnam that there was a standard oil refinery in Haiphong operating all the time during the entirety of the war. Wait a minute. Who owned standard oil? Americans. In other words, they were buying American oil to fight the war, and the refinery was owned by standard oil. What's wrong with that? Haiphong is their, was their major export uh, import thing. We'll talk about that in a little in a different a little different way in a few minutes. In other words, Standard Oil fed the tanks, the Russian tanks, the trucks, the airplanes, the, whatever they needed, Navy ships, our Rockefeller family. Do you understand? Maybe this technology was being sent into the Standard Oil refinery located there. I do know this, that the port of Haiphong was off limits to American bombers during the entirety of the war. Uh. There's a refinery there and we don't blow it up? No, we couldn't. Wait a minute. Generals know about blowing up refineries, but the war was, we're going to talk about that in a short time. The war wasn't planned or fought by generals. It was fought by bureaucrats with briefcases in Washington, D.C. In 1969, the Export Control Bulletin reported that America sold Russia 7 million pounds of tungsten, Tungsten is used in making armored plate steel for tanks and armored personnel carriers. Oh, we got to protect those Russian soldiers and tankers. So we'll give you this material to do it with. I would like to give you at least two evidences of the fact that the American government did know. Congressman H.R. Gross of Iowa introduced an amendment to the Foreign Aid Bill in November of 1967 to prohibit American foreign aid grants to nations which traded with North Vietnam. The bill was defeated by Congress. Wait, 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 read that again. The bill was defeated by Congress. What did you just say? That bill got defeated by Congress. And what is wrong with that? Absolutely nothing. That is a perfectly moral, constitutional, and rational position. <laughs> but the Congress didn't agree, and they defeated the amendment. In 1969, Congressman Earl Landgreeb proposed an amendment to the Export Control Act of 1949, which read, quote, no commodities, military or otherwise, shall be authorized for shipment to any foreign nation which sells or furnishes to North Vietnam, any equipment, materials, or commodities. In other words, if you help our enemy, we will not help you. And what's wrong with that? Well, nothing. It's perfectly moral, constitutional, and it's a rational position. But the amendment was defeated in Congress. What's it, what, what, wait, what was that? That amendment, unfortunately, was defeated in Congress. Wait, 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 I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. That amendment was struck down and defeated in Congress. Why would they do that? I would like to give you another example of how American technology was being used to kill Americans. This is Peter Stark, a former Green Beret sergeant in Vietnam, he came to Portland in 1970 as part of a nationwide speaking tour in which he discussed his involvement in the war. This is part of what uh, he had to say. In 1966, this is quote, in 1966, after the war started in 1965, the United States sent the Soviet Union the specifications to a glycerol plant. A glycerol is used in the manufacture of explosives. Specifically, in Vietnam, glycerol is used as a detonator in booby traps. This is a poor quality drawing I made myself of what a booby trap looks like. 
It was used in Vietnam and was made in communist Russia. It consists of two parts. The glycerol is on top and the TNT is on the bottom. The Vietnamese would dig a hole, bury the landmine, and then cover it with a thin layer of dirt. And then subsequently a soldier would come walking through the area. He would not see the booby trap step and then step on it. This would cause the glycerol on the top to explode down, causing the TNT to explode. And then the entire thing, including the shattered metal casings, to come back up, either blowing off the arms or the legs of the person who stepped on it or killing the person. Sergeant Stark then told us just how important these landmines were in Vietnam. When I, when I give this thing publicly, and I'm doing it right now, this, I'm crying. Oh, it's heartbreaking. He said that over 50% of all American casualties suffered in Vietnam have come from booby traps. This is once again a close-up of Sergeant Peter Stark, retired U.S. Army. The picture does not show it, but he is seated in a wheelchair because he, in fact, stepped on a booby trap. He gave his speech on crutches. Who blew off his legs? Was it the North Vietnamese or the Viet Cong or was it the Russians? No, this was the fault of the United States government for exporting the specifications for a glycerol plant during the Vietnam War. I don't know if you noticed, but in all these wars we're fighting in Arabia and whatever, they're putting them in this car. It's a big, bulky, ugly car. And they, they drive over a mine and it blows off their legs or arms. It doesn't kill them. Happens that, too much. Why don't they protect the car with some sort of metal that doesn't, when it blows up, it doesn't blow up in the face, in the legs of the driver? I would now like to start my explanation as to why all this happened. Just what was the purpose of the Vietnamese War? And why did this conspiracy plan the war in at least 1945? Now, this is a picture of Winston Churchill, Prime Minister of England, during World War II, giving his famous V for Victory sign. He used it to rally the English people during the war so that they would support his efforts to win a victory in World War II. But there were people talking about victory in Vietnam. This is a flyer announcing a movie to be shown in Portland, Oregon when Ralph lived there in 1971. The picture in the lower left is that of John Wayne, the movie star, the moderator of the movie that featured political leaders, military officers, and even a couple of people from the media presenting the case for a victory in Vietnam. But victory was not an option, and those who called for one were generally not heard. There were average Americans who were speaking out about ending the aid and trade between America and communist Russia. And with that cessation of all trade with the Russians, give the American fighting man a victory so that there would be peace in that region. And some in America decided that one way to achieve a victory in Vietnam was to do just that. Cut off the supplies from the enemy and the war would wither and it would end under its own weight. And they reasoned that the way to accomplish this was to have the American government bring an end to the sale of war-making technology to the communist Russian government. So they started a nationwide petition drive to get Congress to do exactly that between the years of 1967 and 1971. This particular petition was issued during phase two of the drive started in 1970. The committee that started the drive was called SHAME, which stood for Stop Helping Our Marxist Enemies. These people collected more than 4 million signatures, reportedly the largest petition drive in the history of the United States. 
The signatures were collected in groups of 10,000 and then delivered to the President and the Congress of the United States. This is a list of the congressmen and senators who were given signed copies of the petitions between May 14, 1968 to June 29, 1970, when the total of signatures were about 1.7 million. So who was it? Who conducted the drive? Was it the VFW? Was it the Democrat Party? Was it the Republican Party? I guess I didn't put that in there, but I ended up with a, it was a slide on the four-hour one saying it was the John Birch Society. Boy, we didn't like the John Birch Society. You're crazy, man. We're trying to stop the aid and trade. Boo, hiss, go away, don't bother me. Now, let's get tough. I say this in response. This is Ralph Epperson responding. I say that those who supported the sale of technology were murderers. Next, I would like to explain how the American government intentionally frustrated the efforts of the soldiers and airmen in the war. He gets frustrated as he grieves over the loss of six of his men and then decides to take a decisive action himself. He decides to strike out at the Army's authority itself. He decides to commit an act called fragging. In other words, we were, we were the, fight, the soldiers were starting to figure this thing out. This is madness. It doesn't make sense. We're losing and, and we're not winning. We don't want to win. And all I keep doing is killing and then come home and then go on killing again. So they, some of them decided what to do about it. Listen to this. Fragging stands for fragmenting, meaning you take a hand grenade, pull the pin, and then throw it at your officers as a way of protesting the stupidity of the war. Fragging was the intentional murder of your officer by fragging him with a grenade because the war did not make sense. Amen. Enlisted men are killing officers with a grenade. Why? This act was, was the result of the soldiers' overall frustration at the entire war being fought. Wikipedia says that they have documented 230 such cases, but as many as 1,400 other officers' deaths could not be explained. Harry Maurer, on page 616 of his book entitled Strange Ground, defines fragging as... A fragmentation hand grenade as a verb, the action of trying to kill a superior officer. And then he says this about fragging on page 161 of his book. Fragging became an occupational hazard for officers. Today, a kind of romance still attaches itself to fragging, the notion that soldiers took righteous revenge on their prosecutors. But this was not a joke. It simply didn't make sense. So the question became... Was it planned not to make sense? And the unqualified answer is yes. President Johnson has emphasized that it is our national policy to keep this conflict at the lowest possible level of intensity for humanitarian as well as political reasons. So we were going to murder our armed services for humanitarian purposes. And Ralph Epperson says this, if you do not commit this nation to victory, do not commit this nation to war. Plain and simple. But no one stopped and no one went home and 58,000 Americans died in Vietnam. So Kennedy was murdered for a reason that as far as I can tell, no one else in this nation is saying. We've been lied to and it is time to finally tell the truth. So with that understanding, it is now time to tell the truth about Vietnam, America's betrayal and treason. Is it this subject? I'm telling you, 
for you see that and now the second part wait a minute all this all makes sense what what this was about in the second part and so that's where we're going to close this first section of this interview part two will be the next midweek show again i would like to invite you to head over to ralph epperson.com that's r-a-l-p-h and then epperson e-p-p-e-r-s-o-n ralph epperson.com all of his books and dvds and everything he has to offer is right there and he sends them to you right out of his house so he told me to tell my listeners if you're interested just write a little note in there that you heard it on the show and he'll be glad to autograph your book for you which is a very nice offer. So if you're interested in books, and you should definitely have The New World Order and The Unseen Hand, those two should be in your library. And if you'd like to get them autographed by Ralph Epperson, tell them in the little notes that you heard it here on Down the Rabbit Hole with Big D, and he'd be glad to sign those for you. That's something Ralph has offered to our listeners. I hope you enjoyed that. Part two will be next week, and it's fascinating as well. It gets really deep into Vietnam to right up to today. So thanks so much for tuning in this week. I hope you enjoyed part one of Ralph Epperson, our first guest here on the Down the Rabbit Hole program. Like I said, it's quite a little bit of a different interview than I've ever done before, but I quite enjoyed it. It was fun. It took me a moment to sort of get into that vibe because I'm usually the one asking questions and probing and trying to get answers out of somebody. So Ralph was having none of that. He knows what he wants to say, and that's pretty much where he's at. And I highly respect him, and so I respected that. And hopefully you enjoyed it as well. Remember, you can email us at downtherh at protonmail.com, downtherh at protonmail.com. Brandon and I will be back on Sunday with a brand-new episode. We're looking forward to that. In the meantime, everybody, have a great week, and stay tuned. We'll drop part two next week.